On today's episode number 70, I speak with Dr. Amy Collier about not yetness. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today on episode 60 of Teaching in Higher Ed, Dr. Amy Collier joins me to talk about not yetness. She is the Associate Provost for Digital Learning in the Office of the Provost at Middlebury College. And that's a recent transition that she made. She'll tell us a little bit about that later on. She, prior to that, was at Stanford and most recently was the Director of Digital Learning Initiatives in the Office of the Vice Provost for Online Learning. Amy, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hi, Bonnie. Thank you. I noticed on your Twitter profile, you said that you are very nerdy and often geeky. And I'm curious how you distinguish between those two things. Oh, so I, I think this is, this is just my definition. I don't, I don't claim that this is correct. Um, I think that nerdy for me is kind of the book learning, the, you know, knowing theorists and certain books that you read in grad school. Geeky for me is my husband. <laughs> so uh, somebody who likes Star Wars and Star Trek. Uh, who's into sci-fi, um, which, you know, geeky is actually quite popular these days. So I kind of, I begrudgingly say that um, I'm not as geeky as I'd like to be because um, it's very in right now. And one of the other things you mentioned is that you enjoy shenanigans. Are there any that you care to admit to on today's podcast? <laughs> Let's see. A safe one might be karaoke. Let's go with that. <laughs> I enjoy, especially at conferences. I have wonderful colleagues who I see at conferences and Occasionally, we like to indulge in some singing and occasionally some dancing. You also mentioned you like to sing the blues. Have you ever heard John Mayer on his live album do Every Day? I have. I have the blues. I have. He tries to channel a bit of Eric Clapton, who I favor uh, more than I do John Mayer. But my favorite blues artist is actually Stevie Ray Vaughan. Ah. My son is named after Stevie Ray Vaughan. And and he was born on B.B. King's birthday. He's a blues kid all the way around. And I don't have, I have lots and lots of songs from back in the days when we actually bought CDs, you know. <laughs> the thing is, what, would, what would be the one <laughs> album or maybe even just the one song I should absolutely go and listen to after we hang up the phone about uh, from Stevie Ray Vaughan? Oh, goodness. Uh, Probably too hard. Gosh. Uh, I would say, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb is always just super fun. I mean, it's just, it's, it's lively and it's hilarious and it's just, he, you can tell he's having a great time and it's so easily to, it's so easy to digest. I so it's, heard a, it's a great one. intro into TV Raybon and there's some great documentaries about him. So if you, if you like what you hear, he, he had a, a tormented life. And so it's, it's very interesting to watch. He died too young. You studied for your PhD family studies, and that's something I don't know a lot about. Could you share how you got interested in that and also what it was like studying that for your doctorate? Family studies is, is kind of a, a sociology of the family, kind of a mixture of sociology and psychology and education. It looks at the system, the family system, and it, it defines that pretty broadly. It's not, it doesn't kind of 
dictate what a family looks like necessarily. Um, and it looks at that, that the family system interacting with other systems like education systems and government systems and healthcare systems and things like that and looks at how those dynamics are all interrelated. I got into the field mostly because I decided after declaring myself as a music major that I actually wasn't cut out to be a music major and then after declaring myself as a I think it was English or communication major. I wasn't really cut out for that either. And I found family studies, which was an interdisciplinary program. It had psychology and economics and sociology and all these different fields in it. And I thought, wow, that sounds just interesting enough for someone who gets 40 to like I do. I started the program and just fell in love with it. I love the, the theory building that we do in it. I love the kind of inclusive examination of the family. I love the participatory action research. I at first wanted to get into advocacy. I thought I would go be an advocate for, for different kinds of uh, policies that were, were friendly for um, different kinds of families, um, but found education and, and, and went in that direction instead. You said that you named your son after Stevie Ray Vaughan, but then I didn't. Even, is, is your son's name Stevie? Is that correct? It's actually Vaughn. <laughs> oh, his name is Vaughn. <laughs> Sorry if I missed that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell me about no, Vaughn. it's okay. Tell me about Vaughn playing with the Lego bricks and how that really connected you with the thought of how people learn? Yeah, so I mean, I think you learn a lot from parenting about, you know, learning and, and certainly, you know, in my studies, we studied parenting, we studied child development. So, you know, kind of from my nerdy side, from my book side of things, I knew I knew that play and that um, creative engagement was um, important to people's learning, but I, I hadn't really witnessed it, you know, very, very closely. Um, but, you know, as you watch your child growing up, you see things happening and you kind of start to, to wonder why or wonder what's happening inside of them. Um, and so I, I'd begun to, to think about his education and broader education as, you know, w- what are we trying to do here? Why do we keep seeing, um, why do we keep seeing solutions and, and, and challenges thrown towards education that really paint education in this very short-sighted kind of, limited light. And so um, I was preparing to do a talk on Not Yet, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And I decided just to to kind of play with my son and see what happened um, when I gave him a couple different Lego sets. So what I did is I gave him one Lego set and I told him, I, gave, I had him pick out two of the exact same Lego sets. So the Lego sets were the same. I had him build one set with um, with the instructions and the instructions. And I have a video on my blog so people can go look at these two videos of him building these other sets. You'll see in the video that when he's building according to the rules, you know, he's following the instructions and, you know, he's very concentrated because these instructions are, if you've ever built Legos, you know, sometimes quite complex. Um, so he builds and, you know, he, he accomplishes what he set out to do. And then I gave him the exact same set, the, the other one that was unbuilt, and I said, now just build it however you want. And he said, you know, really? How do I want? I said, yeah, just however you want. Don't, you know, don't worry about the instructions. And immediately as he started building, you know, he, he went to these creative places. He started putting together things that looked nothing like the original set. And he played the whole time. He kind of, you could see his enjoyment in the video. It's just, it's so palpable. You, there's no audio in the video, but you can still see he's making sounds. He's talking the whole time. He's just having a blast. And ever since, you know, I watched him play with Lego still and you know he'll occasionally build the set as it is supposed to be the very first time but then from then on out it's it's mayhem you know it's 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 whatever he wants to do and that's the great thing about Legos is it gives kids these tools that 
they don't have to be uh, built a certain way. And, you know, when you start to kind of take that and turn it into thinking about learning more broadly, you know, what I love is that when you, when you kind of work with students to give them bricks, to give them tools and spaces and opportunities to kind of do what, you know, do something related to what you're, you're, you're talking about in class, but that they can kind of take it and build things that are their own and do certain creative uh, ways that you might not have predicted, um, you'll see, I think, a lot of joy and a lot of excitement and a lot of play when that happens. And that's, that's one of the things that I, I think is something we should achieve, we should strive to achieve as educators, is to give students that space to play. As I told you about over email, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. You actually recently moved to jobs, so I had to be patient and <laughs> wait until you yeah. set, <laughs> settled in, although I don't think you're probably ever likely to be too settled of a person. I think you like the adventure of it all. But I was not as mm-hmm. nervous today as I usually am because you and I have already have discovered things in common and it helps me feel more comfortable. Two of those things we have in common, one is our love of teaching and just passion and thinking about that and reflecting. And then the second one is perhaps unexpected by some of our listeners, and that is that Jazzercise has connected us. You teach Jazzercise <laughs> classes, and I take them, and I have been for many moons. In fact, my mother took the first Jazzercise classes from Judy Missett, who's the founder. And oh, my wow. <laughs> my brother and I would go to the junior high school where she would teach, and we would kind of toll around there while mom took her class. And then as I got older, I took the junior Jazzercise and got old enough to do it. So tell me about your interest in Jazzercise and what parallels you see between it and your love of teaching and how people learn. I found Jazzercise through a friend, my my best friend at the time I was living in Texas. And he joined and she just fell in love with it. And I, I just recently had my son and I said, well, I'll go. And I tried it one time and I was like, uh, not for me. I felt awkward. I felt like I didn't, I had no dance background. I felt like, you know, maybe this just wasn't going to be for me. And eventually I decided, you know what, for my health and because my best friend goes, I'm going to try again. And for some reason, whatever it was, at that moment, at that time in my life, it just clicked. And I think it was partly because my, my state of mind had changed over time. Right after having my son, I actually had a little bit of postpartum depression. And coming out of that, I, I, I started to see opportunities for, for joy in my life differently. And this became one of those opportunities for joy in my life. And dance has become, I think, since then, a place where I find freedom and I find clarity and I find health, of course, because this is a health program. Just immediately, as soon as I started taking classes with a different frame of mind, uh, within you know a couple of classes, one of the teachers came up to me and she goes, you move well and you seem to really love this. You should try to be an instructor. And at the time, I was starting to get, uh, I was starting to, to apply and, and interview for the job at Stanford that I had before I came to Middlebury. I thought, well, I'm about to move. Might be something to try. And so I moved out to California. I had lots of free time on my hands because uh, my husband and son had not moved out with me at the time. I tried out. And what I love about it, in addition to just the program, is, is a wonderful program. And, and that dance is something that I find something that connects us as humans, something that, at least for me, is a place of a place of in, in immense joy. I find that I love the teaching of it. I love to connect with people at all different kinds of fitness levels and work with them to find that joy in their own way. And I think this parallels kind of how I think about teaching too, in that you know, for me, coming into the classroom at, from a place of acceptance of 
you know, each of the people who's coming into this classroom comes from a different background, has a diverse experience, in this case with dance, has, you know, maybe some baggage around dance. Some people have fear, some people have a huge background, and so they come in with a lot of confidence. Uh, in the same way that I would see a student coming into my, my class on uh, some educational topic, you know, they come in with different backgrounds. And finding out what drives them, what gets them excited, what keeps them coming back, starting from where they are and, and, and helping them to find their own voice or their own step, um, their own way of in- improvising. To me, that's just, that's, that's what education is about to me. That's what, uh, that's where I find the most joy. And I think that um, I've been able to replicate in my jazz side classroom the way I approach teaching in general. Mm. And because of that, I think I, you know, I develop strong relationships with my students. I feel like my classroom is a community rather than just a place where I go in and, and do a job. Uh, and so I think that there's a really nice parallel between my, my love of jazz recites what I do and the way I, I approach teaching and learning more broadly. How do you define not yetness? And when did this phrase come first enter into your mind? So not yetness is a term that Jen Ross and I, um, Jen Ross is at the University of Edinburgh. She's a senior lecturer there. Um, she and I met at a conference a few years ago and just really cut it off. We, we've become great colleagues and, and we've worked together on several projects. And we were, we were asked a few years ago to do a presentation at a conference, a keynote at a conference. And it was on kind of mess in online learning. And the, the idea was for us to kind of push back on some of the ways in which we approach online learning, which is to, to put really rigid structures on top of it, whether it's using rubrics to design a course or to use a heavy-handed backward design process that, that doesn't allow for some creativity, for some, some exploration, um, both on the part of the faculty and the students. And so our, our keynote was on kind of bringing mess and, and embracing mess into online environments um, to allow for, you know, different, different kinds of learner experiences and outcomes to emerge. And the notion of emergence was one that we had been playing with. Um, we kind of ran into it through complexity theory. Complexity theory has this notion of emergence. And um, it, it was a, it, it just kind of resonated for us, kind of creating the conditions for emergence was something that we felt like um, was where we wanted to, to talk about and, and do additional research on. Um, after the presentation, we had a chance to then write kind of book chapter um, for um, 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 a book that George Feliciano is, is the editor for. And it was, again, on kind of this idea of mess and online education. And as we were writing about it, we came across the original, the, the first edition of this book, um, which, in which George Lozanos had um, written a, an introduction where he talked about that emerging technologies, uh, he kind of explores the notion of emerging, what does emerging technologies mean? And he um, writes about how emerging technologies satisfy two not yet conditions. Um, one is that they're not yet fully kind of understood, uh, you know, that they're, you know, that how they're used and what they're intended to be is not totally defined yet and that they're not yet fully researched. Um, that is, that we don't really fully understand how to um, assess those environments or those tools, to whatever the emerging technology is. And we, we really watched on to this idea and thought about it, the notion of not yet. Um, because 
on the one hand, while we're talking about emerging technologies in this case as being kind of um, not yet this and not yet that, what we love the idea is kind of living in that not yetness about kind of instead of using not yetness as just a means to an end, actually not yetness as, a, as an end itself in that when you embrace not yetness, you're kind of allowing for uh, emergence. You're, you're creating space for things to, to continue to evolve and develop as, say, a student grows and develops through, through learning certain things or, you know, when you're designing a course, creating space that is not fully defined and doesn't have maybe a specific purpose and that's okay and embrace that and talking to students about, you know, this is a space that I put here and I don't really know what to do with it. Let's figure this out together. So we love this idea of kind of embracing that yetness as a place where we can see things emerge, where we can give people space to to try new things without pressures of um, uh, checklists and um, rubrics and everything has to be just perfect before it launches. Um, and I think this is the reason it's kind of resonated with people is that so many of the technologies we see and so many of the designs that people talk about today in terms of online digital learning are very uh, kind of overly defined, you know, like a, a backwards and addy design process is that, you know, that's the exact expectations for what will happen and the exact place where students will get to and that the expectations for how students will get there. And those are all, they're, they're lovely ideas in theory, I think, but they don't leave a lot of space for, you know, improvisation, as you were saying before, of, um, uh, of creativity and play and discovery and awe. Uh, and I, I, I can't help but think that those are parts of education that we actually really like. And so by not creating space for those things, we end up kind of just creating this mechanistic approach to education rather than something that feels more human. Uh, and more responsive to our humanity. So that's kind of the notion of not yet that we've been working with. And, you know, what's great about it as a concept is that, you know, a lot of people have taken it to very different places um, to talk about not yet in faculty development, to talk about um, not yet in a variety of contexts. And I think it, it's, a, it's a lovely way to frame uh, an embracing of emergence mm-hmm. as a place where we can be human and and find joy in the work that we do. You earned your PhD in an interdisciplinary uh, discipline. <laughs> that sounds really redundant. Mm-hmm. And and you also, of course, have worked across many disciplines in coaching and, and supporting faculty. What are a few examples that come to mind of whether it's emergence in different disciplines or whether it's not yetness or just messiness in online education? What are some stories that come to mind? One of the things that comes to mind when I think about not yetness and the notion of interdisciplinary is, or interdisciplinarity is the idea that so much of our um, curriculum, even that word is kind of a funny one. And um, so much of the things we do in education are kind of bound by disciplines. Right, that you know, disciplines are the way in which we structure things, and they they guide students through a particular path. And and where I've seen the most kind of creativity and and exploration is where students are allowed to kind of transverse between different paths because of interest, because of things that really motivate them. 
So, you know, without thinking about technology, I can think of um, programs where students have gotten really involved in social issues, right? And so instead of, you know, just taking biology, maybe I'm actually in some kind of program or some kind of um, interdisciplinary thing that allows me to take courses related to social issues um, from a variety of different stances or from a variety of different perspectives. And what that does is it allows me to get a better kind of a more holistic view of a phenomenon, maybe I'm studying poverty or I'm really interested in alleviating poverty, seeing it from a biological lens, seeing poverty from a social lens, seeing poverty from a humanistic lens. All of those help me to better understand the issue and to be creative about how I approach uh, looking for or looking for solutions or engaging other humans in solutions. Um, and that cross disciplinarity really gives you the ability to, to work across methodologies, across theoretical lenses, in a way that I think is really important. When I think about that, you know, kind of facilitated by technology, I think of things like domain of one's own, which, you know, is really just it's a it's a place where it's more centered around an individual, um, but an individual can can connect to broader communities, say a community about social issues that I'm interested in, through their own um, their own domain, um, and and stay with that community and interact with that community um, in a flexible way, independent of what kind of program they're in. So, you know, the example that I use on my blog when I talk about not yetness and and in this case, kind of interdisciplinary interdisciplinarity is. Um, DS-106, which is a digital storytelling course that was done several years ago by Jim Groom and some other folks at the time at University of Mary Washington. And you know, digital storytelling is a, is a topic that you can approach from a number of different lenses, from like humanistic, which I think was kind of the original um, framing of it, but you can approach it from uh, psychology or from, uh, you know, a lot of different lenses. And you know, the space and the ways in which students could interact with it um, were facilitated by the fact that they had this, this flexible infrastructure that they could, you know, post things to and share their perspective and, and synthesize perspectives and reflect on perspectives while also connecting to a community that um, kind of on, in an ongoing way was, was having discussions about this topic. Um, so I, I guess that's how I would see um, the relationship between uh, not yetness, and you know, an example like domain of one's own, and this notion of interdisciplinarity. It's interesting to talk to people almost every week, sometimes twice a week, about teaching in higher ed. There's so many. I, I just love the diversity of conversations we've had. And and when Jesse Stommel was on, he talked about teaching with Twitter, among other things, and he was sharing about, and, and I, I just felt this tension to stop wanting to track it all. And I want to have there be perfect check boxes and know to what extent people participated. And, and it's, those are the kinds of things. And I, I know this from online forums, which I, I no longer use at all, because I, I find them to be not helpful to the learning process. But when we tell people, for example, go to three different students, messages and reply to their messages. And that's how we decide that you check the box for that week. And I get those kinds of tensions, but Twitter just opened up this whole box because there's not a, a nice little tidy box of, of how to track that sort of thing on, on any level. And then last week's conversation, 
she was talking about that her students, and this is these are Yale students, I can't even imagine how much more this is true for my students, that they needed some kind of a reward to give their group answer and to have that little bit of motivation. What, where do you see this tension between me wanting to track things and have there be accountability and, and yet can it go too far in the messiness direction? What, what would be your thoughts on that? I'm not sure I'm asking a very good question, but hopefully I've sparked something in you. Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. Um, and it's a question that, you know, often when we talk about that network, um, this is one of the questions that comes up. Particularly, you know, say a faculty member might say something along the lines of, um, you know, yes, not yet, and this is appealing to me, but the way I get um, uh, rewarded as a faculty member is by my students achieving specific goals that maybe my department has outlined for me. And if I can't demonstrate in a really tangible way to, you know, whoever's looking at this, my administrator or whoever, um, that my students have achieved these particular specific goals, uh, you know, I'm in trouble. It doesn't, this does not work for me. And I think, I think that you're right that, you know, there's, there's, there is a tension between the, the expectations, uh, even that students bring, uh, but the expectations that we have about what an education might look like and what are the, the telltale signs of a quote-unquote good education and, and messiness and the kind of exploration that we, uh, we were just talking about. Um, and clearly there is no right answer, but I will, I will propose a couple of things. I think one of the, one of the good things, one of the fruitful things about this, these conversations we've been having about not yetness is when they raise these questions, one of the, the following responses and something that Jen Ross has really tried to tackle is, you know, what if our methods for understanding evidence of learning are insufficient? And because of that, even if we try to apply them and say, well, we need to meet these because, you know, we need evidence of learning, really they're just, as you said, kind of check marks. They're not totally evidence of learning. And so I think, you know, what this raises is a question of how do we know, how do we better understand what it means to learn and what that looks like and how diverse it can look like and what are the methods that we should be evolving and exploring alongside our teaching methods to improve our understanding, to improve our assessment. Uh, and I use assessment kind of um, realizing that it's a problematic word here um, so that we can understand and the students themselves can understand what progress has been made um, and, and, and the, the students can feel motivated to be working towards something because sometimes you know, that, that checklist gives them something very concrete to work towards. And even if they don't really get much out of the process of checking those boxes, they're checking the boxes. Um, and that's motivating for a lot of students. So I guess what I would say is that one of the conversations we should be having is how do we evolve our, the ways in which we understand what learning is? And my concern, and this is something I talked about in my keynote with Jesse Samuel recently, my concern is that we've kind of swung, the pendulum has kind of swung towards the, the kind of uber accountability side of things where, you know, the, the ways in which we define learning are, um, are like you said, the kind of checkboxes, the, the rubrics learning outcomes, the, you know, gold standard research, which is uh, blind, 
uh, empirical research that gives us these very clear answers about, you know, can we predict when the student will drop out? And can we, um, can we determine what, what is a, a student's knowledge state, you know, at a certain point in time? Um, and so that kind of thinking has, does not really mesh well with the notion of kind of messiness and not yetness, and that tension is definitely there. So can we evolve our understanding and our thinking about the methods by which we, we have evidence of learning, and even that word evidence is becoming problematic. Uh, Jen Ross has a paper coming out about this, where she talks about speculative methods, and um, she would be much more um, uh, prepared to talk about this than I am, but you know, she talks about embracing methods of understanding that give us give us room to explore um, various ways in which learning is done and demonstrated and shared and understood and motivated. And I think that's a pretty pretty exciting area to, to, to push towards. Um, can there be too much mess? Hard to say. Um, one of the questions that I have been struggling with and one that I, I don't have the answers for, but I'll just throw it out there because I would love to get discussions about this going in addition to discussions about kind of the assessment side of things is how, you know, when you embrace not yetness in your classes, who, for, for which students does that work best? For which students will that really be a, a, an exciting proposition and a place where they can jump off from and do really exciting things, and for which students might that be uh, scary, and maybe not scary in the sense of just it, it frightens them, but it's good frightening, but more like it could cause some kind of disequilibrium that um, is unsafe in terms of their their successful participation in the educational experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know the answer to that, but certainly a question that I've been I've been talking with with uh, Sean Michael Morris and Jesse Samuel and others about, you know, does not yetness favor a certain kind of student and or student with a particular background or student with a particular preparation? Um, and if we embrace it, are we creating a situation where we're furthering inequities in our classes? Mm -hmm. Are we creating a situation where some students will just really, really struggle and struggle in a completely un uh, unproductive and, and problematic mm -hmm. way. I don't know, but that's something that, again, what I love about this concept is it gives us room and an opportunity for reflection to ask those questions of ourselves, to be critical about our own pedagogy. Um, I don't know that we do that enough, and I don't even think there's a, enough space for us to do that in, in the work that we do. Um, and it's often not safe for faculty and teachers we spend time being critical about their own pedagogy and not critical in the sense of just self-evaluation, but critical in the, in the sense of thinking about inequities, thinking about um, who, who, who is in power, who gets left behind, those kinds of things. So these are all really important questions to ask and ones that I hope we continue to discuss. What have I not asked you about not yetness that we should be sure and mention before we go on to the recommendation segment? The one thing I would say, and this relates to kind of the overall conversation that we've had around kind of dance and choreography and improvisation and not yetness, um, it's, it's really just a question that I have and one that 
you'll probably see me on my blog in, in the very near future that I've just been wrestling with and trying to think about. Um, and that's kind of the, the notion of embodiment. Um, Jen and I also explored this in an upcoming chapter that we have about mess and not yet mess. Um, we talk about the embodiment of online teachers and, and even embodiment in the classroom, I think is something that we kind of not explored enough and how that relates to not yet mess. I, you know, I'm, um, in some ways, the concept itself is not yet in my mind, so maybe that, that's part of the issue. Um, but I guess it's just a question that I want to throw out there and encourage conversation about. And like I said, I'll be writing about it soon. Um, because I really want to think about embodiment as, as, a play, as a fruitful area of discussion for thinking about relationships of power, relationships of, of, uh, of learning, um, I'm reminded where Bell Hooks in her book, Teaching to Transgress, talks about um, embodiment. When you ignore the body in the classroom, in the, you know, the physical body in the classroom, you often kind of ignore the things that make, make us who we are, and therefore you kind of privilege, um, I, think, I think it was um, Audrey Waters who says, you, you privilege the mind over the body, and, and how that's a, a problematic thing to do because the body, the body is very much part of who we are and the experiences that we have and the things that we bring to our learning processes. So embodiment is something that I'm just I'm itching to explore, and I would love to have uh, collaborators. I'm, I'm sure Jen would, would too on this on this topic. Um, and you know, in some ways, it relates to my interest in in dance because you know, in in many ways, I have, I have been, I've been building a relationship with a professor here at Middlebury who's a dance professor, and we've been talking a lot about this idea of embodiment and bringing embodiment into the classroom in different ways and how to talk about it and how to recognize that the body is is very much a part of who we are as humans and therefore very much part of our learning. Um, so I, I invite you to bring this, uh, your, your, um, all the listeners to uh, talk about this very not yet topic, at least not yet to me, mm-hmm. um, and to, 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 to a broader conversation. Thanks for that. This is the time in the show that we do recommendations. And my recommendation is just a quick one. It's from a former guest who has become a friend, Doug McKee from Yale. He and I were direct messaging each other back and forth on Twitter. I was having a little tough day and I had stayed at work a long time to grade essays and and just thought, oh gosh, what are we doing? (laughs) I felt pretty discouraged about where my students were at. And he wrote back, your job is to move them one step along a path. You can do that job no matter where they are when they enter your class. And I so needed to hear that last night. And I hope some of you that resonates with you. We don't have to fix all of the challenges of learning in the educational system when we're, we're teaching people who, who maybe aren't where they need to be at this stage in their education. We just have to move them one step along. Hmm. And what is your recommendation like for people today? Um. You know, I'm I'm reminded of, and partly because of the, the dance conversation we've had, I'm reminded of one of my favorite authors, Anne Lamott. She writes, um, I'm, I'm not recalling which book it's in. She's very, she writes about a situation where she had an opportunity to facilitate a course or a class for adults with uh, different kinds of disabilities. And um, she said at the end of the class, she um, um a few of the participants of the class kind of said that they really appreciated her being there because she, she danced with them. Mm. And Anne Lamott writes, um, you know, these are the words I want on the gravestone, that I was a helper 
and then I danced. And I think to kind of go along with your, your idea of kind of one step at a time, I think you're right that in, in many ways we get overwhelmed by the task of teaching. And sometimes if we think of ourselves as dancers, uh, people who, um, you know, maybe there is sometimes choreography, maybe it's sometimes it's free movement, but we're humans and our dance is, is one of the things that we bring to a human interaction. And so I guess if we think about ourselves as, as bringing our humanity to the classroom and being willing to sometimes be vulnerable, which, you know, dance often is vulnerable, sometimes to be choreographed and sometimes to be completely improvisational, and that's okay too. Um, if we see ourselves as dancers, that might be uh, a helpful metaphor for, for some of us who feel overwhelmed by teaching. So um, that you may be a dancer and that you may be a helper um, as teachers. We have something else in common, and Lamott is also my favorite author. (laughs) What a a way to end. Thank you so much for being on Teaching in Higher Ed today, and I hope this is just the beginning of a conversation, and as you said, you've invited others into it as well. Thank you so much for being a guest. You're very welcome, Bonnie. It's great to chat today. Thanks once again to Dr. Amy Collier for being a guest on today's show. If you'd like to make any comments on the episode and she's invited us in to start a conversation, please do so at teachinginhighered.com slash 70. As always, I would love to have your feedback. I'm getting so many great messages with ideas for the show and encouragement. You can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Would love to have you give a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever service it is you use to listen to the show so more people can discover it. That's the way those algorithms work is to get your show up there and have more people become aware of it. Thanks in advance for doing that and to all of those that have already written reviews. And lastly, if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly email, you'll get the EdTech Essentials Guide. All the show notes from every episode will come into your inbox only one time a week. And included will be an article about teaching or productivity. And that can be accessed at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.